Hello, and welcome to another episode of Intelligence for Your Life, the podcast. I'm Gib Gerard, and first and foremost, Happy New Year, everybody. This is the episode that's dropping on New Year's Eve. Wanted to do something a little bit different. First of all, it's just going to be me today. John is literally in the other room right now finishing the mix for our newest public television special, Songs and Stories from the Grand Piano. We are very proud of it. It is what the mo- things we are looking forward to most in 2020. So we are literally delivering that this week to, I mean, I, as soon as this mix is finished, we are going to be delivering that to public television, uh, and you can look for it early this year. We are very, very excited. We will be updating you where you can watch it here uh, on the on the podcast, as well as on the radio, as well as on Tesh.com. Also, if you want to see the show that we will be talking about live, uh, the, that is available at TeshMusic.com. We are starting to tour in February uh, in the southeast, you can in Florida, you can see us live there. That is the same show, or more or less, that's the live version of what it will be in a public television special. So you can check all of that out again, teshmusic.com. I wanted to do something a little bit different today because today is, I wanted to look back as a, on New Year's about what we have learned this year and reflect on. First of all, thank you guys so much for listening. We could not do this show without you. It is why we do the show. We just try to help you guys grow. And we feel like we have learned so or I feel like I've learned so much this year alongside of you guys. Some phenomenal interviews that I am extremely proud of. Uh, people like uh, Dominic D'Agostino, dream interview that I got to do. Joshua Becker, the Gottmans, Reshma Saujani, Cal Newport, got to talk to that. Uh, got, got to talk to him. What I'm going to do today is I'm going to play uh, five episodes or five clips from five episodes that I think are representative of some broader things that we've talked about. So there will be a keto person. Uh, there will be some happiness researchers. There will be some time management, intention management, uh, and, and, and goal setting, and, and some life coaching uh, going on. So these the, the thing that I've taken away from the most this year is I did not realize how much, and I've said this before, how much I love listening to life coaches and and happiness researchers. Those were not things that I thought would tickle my fancy when we started doing this show, but my biggest takeaways, my most profound moments have happened from those conversations. So there will be some of that here. And I will say this, as I look back on the year, and I've said it, I said it in the last episode, I've said it in a bunch of episodes recently, there are a couple of things that I've learned that I hope you will all take with you into 2020. Uh, because I want everybody here, I want to have 2020 be my best year yet, and I want everybody that listens to this show to have their best year in 2020. And the things are this. First and foremost, uh, gratefulness journaling. You need to, Every day, you need to write down three things that you are grateful for, three things that, that remind you of why you get out of bed in the morning. You can find them no matter how dark your day is. I promise you, you can find three things to be grateful for, whether it's the breath in your lungs and that's it, or, or it's the people that make your days worth living. You can find those three things. The other thing is to be brutally honest with yourself, which we'll talk about in a second. Uh, and you can do that through journaling with the gratefulness journaling, but also just writing out your thoughts and, and doing it without judgment and with total and complete honesty. And finally, positive self-talk. That is, it's a crazy thing, and I've made fun of it for a long time, but it is time and time again, and I've seen enough research and talked to enough researchers that back this up, Talking to yourself about yourself in positive terms is key to changing the way that your mind is framed. So that can be that uh, can start with some visualization meditation where you visualize the positive things in your life and how and it starts with the gratefulness journaling. But when you start talking about how capable you are, you become more capable. It sounds like hogwash, 
But time and time again, the research supports the notion. So take those habits with you into 2020. If you take nothing else from this show, that's number one. So here we go. Uh, Our first clip is from one of my favorite interviews that I was surprised by, Lauren Zander. Uh, The name of this episode, and I'll put a link to the whole thing in, in the show notes, was The Power of Extreme Honesty. So The Power of Extreme Honesty with Lauren Zander. Here she is talking about the importance of being honest with yourself and how she uses that honesty uh, to transform the culture of Fortune 500 companies and how you need it in your life in order to be able to live your best life. You need that extreme honesty. So here, extreme honesty, easy for me to say. Here is Lauren Zander. How do you get buy-in from people who would sort of be blocked to this, right? Obviously, the p- places where you're most needed are the places that are the least likely to have the self-awareness to bring you in. Well, so now imagine that I've been doing this long enough. <laughs> okay. Right. And there's so much proof of the results that, so the main reason we get brought into big corporations, insurance companies, mm-hmm. publishing companies, mm-hmm. you know, one of our biggest jobs right now is in Live Nation, right? And which is a huge $18 billion company. They own Sirius, you know, yeah, so it's yeah, a yeah. huge organization. Sure. Um, but they all care about results. They all care about their bottom line. And then they, and so because for years and years and years, we've been producing that the more you get people happy, emotionally Mm. happy, emotionally connected to their mission Mm -hmm. inside of a company, the more money you'll make, (laughs) which is true. Yeah. Um, I, I had them at hello. Right. Because, because you have the track record. Well, I really do prove the more honest a culture is, the more, the better the team works, right? right. It actually is the, the more honest the marriage is, the more honest two best friends are, the more honest they are, the better you can go forward right. or you can leave each other well, right? right? So, so, you know, it really does work. And right. I, I mean, I believe that hundred percent because you can't yeah, deal yeah. with, pro- you can't deal with problems in, and you just brought up some, a, a great point that I want to pivot to in a minute here. You, you yeah. can't deal with problems if you're not honest about what they are. Yes. And, and, and if you immediately start by talking about lying Mm -hmm. and talking, and then what I really go after in an individual and therefore in a company, because it's individuals, but also in a culture, there's just lots of individuals stuck in a narrative. Right. So I go after inner dialogue and the inconsistencies with values Mm -hmm. and what you're saying in your head and how you're acting on the court. And everybody needs to understand that because it's live action and it's a mess. Mm -hmm. And I can point it out in five seconds, right? I can see it by the actions. I can see it by the results. I can back you into how the narrative is, what's the problem. And then it's a group narrative or an individual narrative. And it's a boss and it's all these conversations that are not happening. And so then everyone wants to have them because everybody cares about the results. Right. And I, so, and then, go ahead. Yeah. No, keep going. Yeah, 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 yeah. So then, it, then you have to go after the team, but because, but there's, but because of the way I do that, it's, it's not shaming. It's not mm. good or bad or right or wrong. It's the human condition. We have a dark side. We have a light side. Right. We, and, and if you can't make fun of and call out the dark side, you are getting nowhere with that light. Mm. Link in the show notes to where you can listen to the entire interview I got to do with Lauren. Uh, Very proud of it. Very proud of who she is. Uh, Love talking to her. I love continuing to talk to her. Next up, 
we have another one of my favorite. Well, they're all going to be my favorites, so I don't know why I keep saying that. But uh, uh, this is this was something that really snuck up on me. This is Dacker Keltner. Uh, he's got an amazing re- resume, but he's a professor at at uh, Cal Berkeley, and he uh, is all about the psychology of happiness, all about the ways of making yourself uh, happier or what it means to be happy and how our brains are wired for the emotion of happiness. Uh, the Secret to Wellness with Dacker Keltner is the name of the episode. Link to that in the show notes. You can check it out. Uh, but here is, is Dr. Keltner talking about a couple of things, but most importantly, it's the, it's the significance that emotions play in shaping our reality and then how our dissociation from emotions actually hurts us. So uh, this is all about the importance of emotions. If you don't think you need to be happy, if you think that's some wishy-washy stuff, this is how your brain works with emotions. Uh, so, so if emotions are real and emotions are necessary from a human interaction standpoint, right? That there is yeah. a certain fundamental thing, even if we don't fully understand it, we have this certain attachment that we have to have when it comes to emotions. Yeah. Where do, where do emotional disorders fit, fit into that? People who have... Um, the very rare, although often, like you said, often uh, thrown around psychopathy, sociopathy, these these completely detached emotional disorders, uh, or even you know even more minor ones, these these yeah. narciss- borderline personality disorders, narcissistic yeah. personality disorders that we're seeing, especially with online, uh, play out more and more. Uh, you know, how, how does that fit into it? Yeah, you know, um, the if emotions are one of the primary ways in which we adapt successfully to life, um, then, you know, deviations in emotional response will prove to be problematic to how, how well we live and the meaning we derive. And your emotion profile, for example, how much joy you're feeling and are you laughing? And do you feel grateful for things you have and do you feel joy and, uh, or fear versus shame and anger really predict how happy you are. They're almost synonymous. They predict your life expectancy. They are very, as Ann Kring and I, uh, 20 years ago, when you look at the classification of different disorders like anxiety disorder, depression, um, you know, antisocial disorders in young boys and so forth, uh, emotions are present in, in 40 to 50 percent of the symptoms they use to classify these disorders. So they're right at the heart of the meaningful life and, and where that those disruptions come from, uh, part of it's genetic, right? So if you have a particular variation on a certain chromosome and then it influences parts of the brain that help you listen to people carefully, you will be more vulnerable to, say, autism spectrum. Mm. Uh, The family matters, life context matters, a really hot new area, Gib. And I think this is going to transform our understanding of emotional disorders is trauma. Yeah. Um, and you know, I don't know if you know this literature, but there's a big study at Kaiser, the ACEs study, early childhood adverse experience or adverse childhood experiences. Mm-hmm. I, and, you I, know, I mean, I don't know it. I'm, I, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm a so broadcaster, simple, not a, <laughs> but go ahead. Yeah. But it's so important just to remember, right. You see somebody on the street who's really struggling. Like we have a lot of homeless at Berkeley mm-hmm. Berkeley. And they're showing psychopathy or, or rage. If you go back into their childhood when they're four or five, very likely they have been beaten, sexually assaulted, suffered uh, the, pro- the issues of poverty like malnutrition, mm-hmm. 
and had mental disorder violence in their lives. So trauma is going to be a big player in this story. And does that affect which genes that you mentioned before, which, which of those genes are actually expressed? Yeah. I mean, we, we don't know, uh, you know, the, the literature on epigenetics uh, is, is the next big area in the gene story. Mm-hmm. But, but we will start to learn, and there are studies of, of rodents, you know, that if I am in a traumatic familial context where, let's say, my mother is aggressive towards me, that will affect um, certain methylation on, on DNA that, that affects the expression of genes. So it's coming, and we will have a clearer story in the next 20 years. But it's important also to just remember the life context, that if you if, you know, if Gibb was raised in the Congo during a, a violent genocidal civil war, wow. you're, you're gonna, your emotional life will be forever disrupted. And that, may, and that makes sense, but, but you're saying even at the, at the cellular level, right? Yeah, and that's where the, I mean, it's, it's thrilling to think about just scientifically that, you know, for example, if I come from, if my grandparents were in the Holocaust, that trauma is registered in my DNA and the expression of my genes. Wow. What a, I know, it's, it's their preliminary findings and it's mind blowing. Okay, so I mean, there's a little, we, we got a little, um, a little scientific in there. So, so, uh, I, no, 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 it's not you. I want you to, but I just want to unpack it really fast. So, so again, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to say it and you tell me if, if I've paraphrased it correctly. There are certain traumas that we can experience in our life that will literally affect the way that our genes, the way that our genes play out in our body, change our, our, our brain chemistry, and even will change how those genes are passed on to future generations. Yeah, and, and that, that's the, exactly the synopsis of what's called epigenetics, that environmental experiences shape the, what genes are expressed and then influence the physiological systems that make up your body. So, that is absolute insanity. I mean, I, I, It I, is. Once again, Dacker Keltner linked to that episode in the show notes. Coming up next... Oh my gosh, guys! This was uh, this. I, I I've mentioned this before when we did the. This is Gary John Bishop. After I did the interview with Gary, uh, he sat on the phone with me and gave, and and took like 10, 15 minutes to just talk to me uh, and do a session with me like he does with some of his higher end clients. Uh, I, I I can't. I'm not going to get into too many of the details about what happened, but I will say this: I have never felt so seen. Uh, by another person, I, he within ten minutes could see all of the stuff in me uh, that I thought I was hiding from myself and from other people um, had me in literal tears. Uh, so the, I find that I think I think Gary John Bishop is one of the most powerful thinkers out there, and he talks in a no nonsense way. Uh, so here is our my conversation, some of my conversation with with Gary John Bishop about all of the ways that we lie to ourselves. And, and how to begin breaking down those, those habits of keeping ourselves in stagnation. That he wants you to break out. His whole thing, his whole MO, is breaking you out of this condition that you are in right now, whether it's from past trauma or whatever it is that keeps you from living the life that you should be living. So here is Gary John Bishop to talk about what keeps us frozen like that and how you can unfreeze yourself in the new year. Gary John Bishop. Why do we act against our own self-interest constantly? Right, right. I mean, you know, people do this all the time. Like, you know, they pay off their credit cards. Yeah. A loss for about two months and then spending spree. Right. Right. 
They're going to die and lose 38 pounds than pizza. Yeah. Or they make up with a loved one. Yeah, I'm sorry. You know, it's just a terrible. And then, you know, a day later, like those words are falling out your mouth. You just mm-hmm. know you shouldn't say these words, but here they come anyway. Mm-hmm. And and the more I thought about it, every, every reason that I'd ever read to explain it from psychological to spiritual to, I mean, all kinds of stuff, never quite rung my bell. So I I kind of I went in the opposite direction with it. I started to ask myself, well, if I keep doing this, what's the life that I've got? And I, I noticed that the life I've got is always a familiar one. Mm-hmm. And I, it really hit me like a train, you know, that the point and 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 I get down to it in the book in quite an in depth way. Is the whole point of self sabotage is to keep the life that you've got in existence. It's that you don't ever get to really expand you might get a bit better here and there you might improve things here and there but uh, but there's there's never any opportunity for you to completely reinvent yourself because mm. you keep resorting to base um and then so in the book i explained what the model of that is like what is it you keep returning to right what is it that you keep coming back to and and it's centered around a couple of you know I'm firmly of the belief that human beings are little more than a living conversation like you know Interesting. you're a skin and bone bag that talks and what it <laughs> yeah. talks, and what it talks about is what that life's about and uh, the more you get into it the more you'll actually see how much of your language and your emotional state and your and your outlook and your mood is all in a dance with one another yeah and and it's uh, when you start to kind of approach life from that perspective not only do you see how you've how you've kind of trapped yourself. Right. But um, the more you get into it, you'll actually start to see the way to set yourself free using much the same methodology that you use to trap yourself. So, okay. So, so this idea that we, we want to, we constantly get ourselves back to homeostasis and we've talked to dieting experts about this. Like you hit this weight and, and you really just can't lose any more weight. And if you do lose more weight than that, then all of a sudden you'll, you'll rebound back up. So our bodies, our whole life wants to get to that, we'll call it a comfort zone because that's the that's okay. the more common term. So we want to get to that yeah. comfort zone. Our body yeah. keeps pushing us back there subconsciously. Um, yeah. why, why, I mean, I still don't understand why we keep, why we would keep doing yeah. that. Why is it so hard to break that? Well, uh, my view is that people are looking in all the wrong places, right? <laughs> You're actually looking yeah. at the results rather than what's actually causing it, right? And yeah. you can get any of the physiology of it, but... You know, if you get if you examine life in your own experience, right, and that's mm-hmm. the best place to look, right? You can read as many books as you like and get informed as you like. And some things might make a lot of sense and ring your bell, but you gotta really look in in my experience of being alive, how does this equate? Right. And um if you ask any human being, it doesn't take much if you ask them what's what's your what's your what's your inner critical voice? What does it say to you about you? Yeah. And if and if you settle with it long enough, you'll hear it, right? And you'll hear it stuff like, "I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not loved. I'm not capable." And it's and it's never good news. It's never like I'm awesome, right? <laughs> yeah. It's not, it's not like I'm amazing. And <laughs> now people people do say I'm amazing in myself, but it's to overcome something that's already there. Right. So in this book, I really go into the depths of that. Like in my um, my assertion is is that you are. Your whole life is organized around three simple internal conversations. Um, one of them's about yourself. And and it's repetitive. It never goes away. So you, everybody who's ever 
who's ever done any work on themselves and maybe discovered part of their internal dialogue, or certainly that inner critic about themselves, which is the most common one. There are a couple of other ones that will make sense, and I explain in the book. But um, but the one about yourself is the one people are most in touch with. And you'll yeah. notice it never goes anywhere. Like even you might get your PhD, and that voice for I'm not smart enough is there, right, yeah. in the aftermath at some point. Or you might you know start your business, and it's a roaring success. And you'll notice that business is successful, but somehow you still feel the same. Mm. And so there's this kind of like it's almost like there's this kind of falling off the edge of a cliff after every success. And what you're falling into is the same internal dialogue, the same very deep driven subconscious criticism. Now, people might say, well, why would we even have a criticism? Well, if there's not something to get over, there's no point in getting better. And as human beings, we're we're fascinated with the idea of getting better, better house, better body, better relationships, better mm-hmm. self, better everything. So your life really is spent in the pursuit, as Heidegger would, as not Heidegger, um, Sartre would have called it. We live lives in pursuit of being something, uh-huh. and so that pursuit can never end. So if your criticism of yourself is "I'm not smart enough," you'll never be smart enough. It doesn't matter what you do, right? And in fact, if you suddenly build a life where there's evidence around you that you are in fact smart, you will actively undermine it, right? So either by yourself or, or, or like, you know, undoing things that you've built, like, you know, losing weight. Or So the, the internal criticism wins out. There was a 19th century guy who said, when it comes to the subconscious and, and our cognitive thoughts, the subconscious always wins. Yeah, for sure. So do, do yeah. you think that like Jeff Bezos is walking around going, I'm not rich enough? And no, no, that's not a criticism of himself. But but what drives him to get rich is his subconscious criticism of himself. Mm. But we, So you just, you just don't know what that is? Or we, he's the only one that can tell us what that is? Well, I mean, if you give me him for four minutes, I could probably tell you what it is. <laughs> Link to that full episode in the show notes. Uh, again, uh, I look back on that with a fond amount of pain because of how I of how much he was able to touch me, how much he was able to change me just in that one conversation. It was powerful for me, and I hope it is for you. Okay, one of the things we talk about often here on the show is the ketogenic diet, and I've had a lot of great keto experts on it uh, on here. There is. Uh, there is a lot to be learned about the diet. It's very popular all of a sudden. Here's a conversation I had with uh, author, the author of a, a new Keto Primer book, which I've put a link to in the show notes. It's, it's, it's Keto Answers. It is phenomenal. Can't recommend it enough. This is Chris Irvin, uh, who wrote, co-wrote the book with somebody else we've had on the show, uh, Anthony Gustin. So they co-wrote this book together, and Chris gave us some time earlier this year. And he is following, he's a nutritionist that is following some of the latest research on on the ketogenic diet and how to get into ketosis and some of the implications of it. So uh, if you have ever been curious about the ketogenic diet, this is where I would start with this Chris Irvin interview. I've got tons. I got Mary Newport, who was phenomenal. We've got Dominic D'Agostino. We've got uh, Anthony Gustin. We've even had um, Plant Paradox, Dr. Um, the author of Plant Paradox. I, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he. But we've had tons. Oh, uh, Frank Yosa, who who does uh, who does the keto nesters. So we've had a lot of conversations about the ketogenic diet. This one is the start of it all, or not? It wasn't the start of it all, but I think this is a great place to start if you want to get into the keto diet. 
this is the one to start with. So here we go with uh, some basics of the ketogenic diet and a link again to where you can hear the whole thing in the show notes. This is kind of something that um, have changed changed my opinion on over the last couple of years after kind of looking more into the mechanisms and, and things like that. So I think one of the common misconceptions about a ketogenic diet is that you do have to be in that high fat range to get into ketosis. And okay. I think this, this kind of understanding comes from, um, you know, people think when they, when they learn how ketones are produced, they're produced from the breakdown of fat. Um, people think that, you know, eating fat will increase your ketone production or get you into a state of ketosis. And, um, actually the, the only dietary fat that you can consume that actually will be converted into ketones is MCTs. But is besides that, right? that yeah, yeah. So, um, it, it's kind of, yeah, it was one of the things I didn't know this the first couple of years that I was studying keto as well, but the ketones that are produced in your body with the exception of MCTs, um, those are coming from the breakdown of stored body fat. So Interesting. Yeah, um, the fat that you're eating in your diet, that's more of what's being used for just energy in general. Um, you know, also structural components of your cells and things like that. Um, but it's not a significant contributor to uh, ketone production. And that's just because of the way, um, you know, when we consume dietary fat, they get packaged onto uh, chylomyces microns, which is, you know, they're used to, um, disperse throughout the body and those have a preferential, um, they have a preference to go towards like our muscle cells and, and different places in the body to be used for energy. And then they kind of go to the liver at the end where they're, they're kind of disposed of. And at that point, there's not many, much fat left, um, to be used for ketone production. So, um, so yeah, so that's kind of one of the things that's changed my mind and, and something we talk a lot about a lot in the book is that you know, the ketogenic diet does not necessarily have to be as high fat as what's been traditionally recommended. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that what one thing to remember is that that traditional macronutrient ratio that you talk about the, you know, 20% of your calories from protein and, uh, 70 to 75% plus from fat, uh, that was for epilepsy and, and pediatric epilepsy. And, you know, that's a little bit different for why, you know, some of us might be following the diet. Right. So, um, I always kind of tell people, I don't really like to make a blanket statement on, um, on protein and, and fat recommendations on keto, because it really just depends on what your goal is, you know, for somebody who is doing maybe a therapeutic ketosis and trying to, uh, you know, trying to use it for cancer or something like that, they're probably going to have a much different macronutrient ratio compared to maybe somebody who's trying to optimize their body composition, for instance. So, um, it, it, it's kind of one of those things where you really have to tailor that according to your goals. That's okay. Well, let, let, then let's get, cause when I got into the ketogenic diet, if, if, if the ketogenic diet was a pyramid scheme, I would be making a ton of money right now <laughs> because I got in early. Right. Like I started doing it. We started doing it when it was sort of this weird outlandish thing. And it has gotten extremely popular, popular over the last Mm -hmm. few years um, and and very quickly. And so when I started doing it, there was the Johns Hopkins version, which is the um, Mm -hmm. original 1920s version for uh, pediatric epilepsy that did Mm -hmm. not respond to chemical treatment or, or, you know, uh, pharmaceutical treatment. And also for uh, diabetes, uh, for people, um, it was also a diabetes treatment. I think at same Johns Hopkins development. Um, so that that was it. It was it was those macronutrients. So obviously, the amount of attention and research on the ketogenic diet has increased exponentially in the last five years. Uh, and and so that this uh, the only variant I ever heard prior to this prior to you dropping this bomb on me right now uh, <laughs> was that the amount percentage of protein um could go up if your uh if your resistance extra if your resistance training justified it so uh otherwise like like so you have somebody who's uh, as um 
as Dr. D'Agostino puts it, someone who's metabolically elite, like uh, like a like The Rock, for example, mm-hmm. who whose body can absorb a lot of protein without going into gluconeogenesis, which is the breakdown of protein into sugar, uh, then you'd be okay. But if you were more sedentary or you were not doing a lot of resistance training, then uh, increased protein meant increased blood sugar. Can I drop another bomb on you? Oh gosh! Quick? Oh my gosh! No. <laughs> Are you going to say gluconeogenesis is an on-demand process and is not dependent on the amount of protein in your diet? In a way. Um, okay. I don't fully agree with that statement, but, um, you know, there, there's, it, it really depends on, on where you're at and, and how metabolically flexible you are. So you, you're definitely right when you say that, um, that, you know, somebody who is a little bit more, you know, superior with their metabolic flexibility is going to be able to better handle some protein compared to somebody who let's say is extremely insulin resistant. Um, but it does appear that you, this process of gluconeogenesis is something that is more demand driven and is less supply driven. And when we look at studies that look at like protein overfeeding, we see that really the only populations that we see any sort of significant increase in glucose production from a massive protein overfeeding is somebody who is like a type two diabetic who is extremely insulin resistant. Um, but even in the case of those people, some of the studies that I've looked at where they fed them, you know, 50 to hundred grams of protein at a time, um, it's still pretty, pretty minor increase in blood glu- glucose from that. So, you know, it appears that this process is something that, and, and to, to kind of clear the air on that too, I think a lot of people, because of, you know, the thought that we, we need to be in ketosis all the time and that increasing in blood sugar or increases in blood sugar is bad. This process of gluconeogenesis, um, people often fear it. And I think it's important to understand that it's, it's a very important process that we, we actually have to have. So there's, you know, certain cells we talk about when you're on a ketogenic diet, you're switching your primary fuel source from glucose to fat and ketones. But, um, there's actually certain cells in the body that aren't able to use fat and ketones for energy. So one of the examples of that is like our red blood blood cells are only able to use glucose for fuel. And there's even, you know, certain portions of the brain that have to rely on glucose for fuel. But the beautiful thing is that because of this process of gluconeogenesis, we don't have to eat the carbs to get that glucose. We can actually produce it uh, through this process. So, um, but you know, what we're starting to see as we, we look into some of these protein overfeeding studies is that, you know, this thought that if we have too much protein that we're going to you know, kick ourselves out of ketosis, it just doesn't really hold up unless we really start looking at people who are maybe on the very extreme end of being like metabolically inflexible and and extremely insulin resistant. Special thanks to Chris Irvin for that. Again, link in the show notes to where you can hear the rest of that interview, which is dense, but I think really, really useful. Now, finally, another interview that I really enjoyed doing, Maura Thomas. Now, she uh, has a perspective on time management versus attention management, and this clip will answer that. But I really want you guys to take heed for this because you know the, the key to living the life that you want to live in the new year is going to be how you set and maintain your goals, the small steps you do every day. And you can't do that if you don't own your mind and you don't own your attention. And here is the, the, the germ, this, the, the tiny little seed that I want to plan in your heads about how to control your new year, how to control your attention in the new year, and the importance of it. So here is more Thomas talking about attention management versus time management and why attention management is the way to go. First and foremost, we need to talk about what the difference between attention management and time management are. Absolutely. Every single person who has ever walked the face of the planet has had the same amount of time. So. <laughs> yeah. 
I like to say Beyonce has as many hours in a day as I do, and look what she's able to accomplish. Right, exactly. And the truth is, we people see the path, or we we as a society have have seen the path to productivity as being time management. If I could just manage my time better, then I would be more productive. But it's not about time because everybody's had the same amount of time. People who are way more productive Mm -hmm. than than you are, than I am, maybe have had the (laughs) same 24 hours. And when we talk, when I ask people, what does it mean to you to manage your time? First of all, most people sort of stumble. Uh, I don't really know. Well, I guess making appointments with myself, right? Right, right. I guess just scheduling my time. At 9 o'clock, I'm going to do this, and at 10 o'clock, I'm going to do this. But that doesn't work either because, number one, who's the first person you're going to break an appointment with? Yourself. You, you, yeah, obviously, because there's no consequences for it. That's right. And then, and the second problem is that even if you did manage your time and you said at nine o'clock, I'm going to do that thing. If, if that time goes by and you, even if you pull up that thing that you need to do, but then somebody interrupts you and you deal with that and then Mm -hmm. a new email comes in and you deal with that and then your phone goes off and then you deal with that, the time still passes because you can't really manage time. You can't slow it down. You can't say, okay, nine o'clock actually starts now. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Right? You can't roll it back. You can't get more of it. You can't bend it to your will in any way. And so, number one, time is not our problem. And number two, even if we could manage it, it only matters to the extent that we also give our attention to the thing that we need. Right. And the path to productivity can't be time management because time isn't our problem. Our right. problem in the 21st century is distraction. 100%. And so you can't solve distraction with a time management problem. The antidote to distraction is attention. And so attention management needs to be the solution or the new path to productivity, as I like to call it. Right. I mean, I, I, I agree. I, you know what? That's I think that's why uh, so many CEOs, uh, super successful billionaire CEOs, are the, are, get up so early. Um, and and I, because you can... You can control your attention better at five o'clock in the morning because there's not as many people up and there's not as many things that are pulling on your attention. At 9 a.m., my inbox starts to flood. And now I'm not being proactive, I'm being reactive. And my attention is on whatever people want me to put my attention on, not what I want to do. Exactly. But that's the same thing to me. I read, an, uh, I, I wrote a response to an op ed in the New York Times once about this author who was like, yeah, I have to go up to my cabin in the Catskills to get anything done. Mm-hmm. And I got so worked up about that. Because it's the same thing. It's like, well, the emails keep coming in. Well, close your email. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And then you're not distracted by it. Or don't You don't have to go to your office in the Catskills where there's no internet. Just unplug your internet, right? Just right. work offline. Just shut the internet off on your computer. We be, We behave. That's another part of our problem is that we behave as if we are at the mercy yeah. of our technology and our environment. And in fact, we can control all of that. We just don't. Yeah. So uh, how do we do that in a world where well, I don't want to say seconds matter, but for a lot of us, like, like I, I, I would love to batch my emails and to do emails only during certain hours of the day. However, there are often things that come in that need uh, more or less immediate response. How do I train the people in my life to accept that I will be batching emails and if it's an emergency that needs immediate response, find another method of communication? There are two ways to train other people. 
one is implicitly and one is explicitly. So, <laughs> right. So implicitly you can train them by their behavior, right? Because I bet that, you know, somebody in your life who doesn't get back to you immediately by email yeah. or even by phone or, or right. I bet you the people that you interact with, you kind of know, how, mm -hmm. right. If I text her, she'll get right back to me. If I email her, I'll have to wait till tomorrow, whatever. Right. We, we know that about the people that we interact with and they know that about us. Mm. So we can train them just like those other people are training you by in the way that you interact. Sure. That, so that's implicitly. Explicitly, you could put a line in your email signature that says, I only check email periodically throughout the day. However, if this is more timely, please call me or whatever you want them to do. Link to the whole Maura Thomas episode uh, in the show notes. Guys, that's it for our show today. I hope that you took a little bit of something away from each of those. You can listen to all of those episodes in their entirety, the full interviews of anything that tickled your fancy, as well as a whole bunch of other episodes on those same subjects by going through our archives. Uh, we appreciate you guys listening so much. We appreciate making 2019 such a successful year for the show. Please keep listening. If you like Intelligence for Your Life, the podcast, please rate, comment, and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. It makes a big difference. Also, please, if you like the show, or any of the shows, share it with a friend. Doubles our listenership, makes a huge difference on our bottom line and our ability to keep making this show. So please do. If there's somebody, if there's something that you hear that you want them to hear, that's the way to do it. Uh, follow up with us. Facebook.com slash John Tesh is where we go live. We post the most videos. We are the most active there. Uh, you can you can find us there. Also, John is on Twitter, even though he wasn't on here today, at John Tesh. On Instagram, at John Tesh underscore IFYL. I am Gib Gerard. You can find me at Facebook.com slash Gib Gerard or at Gib Gerard on Instagram and Twitter. I try to respond to every comment and DM about the show. Anybody that you guys want to see on the show I try or hear on the show, I try to get them. Uh, because, again, we do this show for you. Our show today was written and produced by me, uh, also produced by Chrissy Wallen, who did all of the booking for all the great interviews you've heard uh, this year. Thank you, Chrissy. I appreciate you so much. Uh, John Tesh is the executive producer. And, uh, and, again, all of you are the reason that we do this. So thank you guys so much for listening.